0: Good evening, everyone. Um, it's good to it's good to be back. Um, it, um, it's been a while, and I'm I'm excited to continue our study in Ephesians um, tonight. Tonight we are going to be in Ephesians chapter four. Ephesians chapter four. So you can open to that. So long, and um, and then um, while we're getting ready and so on, I'd like to just give a a brief recap of what we've gone through in Ephesians chapter 1 to 3 um, up to this point. So in um, Ephesians 1 to 3, we in the breakdown of the book, we said that that would be the more doctrinal part of the book. So in Ephesians 1 to 3, we um, studied the doctrinal aspect of the book and Paul is now going to switch to a more um, practical or uh, way of applying the doctrine that has been taught in chapters 1 to 3. So in chapter 1, we looked at the plan of salvation. In chapter 2, we looked at the power of salvation and how it reconciles man to God, how it reconciles Jew to Gentile. And um, so we saw that power of salvation. And then in chapter 3, we saw the purpose of salvation, to create one body, Through which God can show his wisdom and his grace, and how we can, or how he can, through that church, develop strong and stable Christians and ultimately let them live lives that are for his glory. So um, that's what we've been looking at in in chapters 1 to 3. And Paul will now focus on the practical side of things, like I said. And um, you can see that already in verse 1 of chapter 4. Where Paul starts off by saying, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation um, wherewith you are called. So you can already see that he's now going to switch to your walk. And um, how I would like to divide um, chapter 4 in into three different um, portions. So verses 1 to 16 is... Um, Christian unity. Now we we said the theme of the whole book of Ephesians is unity, but Paul is going to zoom in on this topic of unity in verses one to sixteen. So verses one to sixteen is Christian unity, and um, I would like to create a sub um, subject within verses one to sixteen, and that's verses seven to eleven, and that is how the Christian gifts um, and how Christian gifts play a a role in christian unity so how how the gifts play a role in christian unity and then verses 17 to 19 is the old walk of life the old walk of life 17 to 19 and then verses 20 to 32 is the new walk of life the new walk of life Um, so that's what we are going to be seeing in chapter 4 we're only going to cover verses 1 to 16 tonight and even with that being said, we have a lot to cover tonight. So verses 1 to 16 is what we're going to cover tonight. So before we get into it, let's just have a word of prayer together. Father, we, we truly thank you, Lord, that we can um, just um, quiet our hearts before you in this evening, Lord, and ask you to please come and bless this um, time. Um, I want to say time of fellowship, Lord. Um, in a spiritual sense lord I'm fellowship with you and um you ask that you would please come bless this time lord lord i ask that your spirit would would guide me as i as i teach lord help me to to say what you would have me say tonight and be with these people lord thank you for each one who's tuned in and i ask that you would please come meet with them as well lord may this evening as a whole glorify your name, and may these things that we learn tonight, um, may we apply it starting tonight and into our day tomorrow, Uh, so Lord, we come ask that you would please come be with us, and um, fill our hearts with joy, and um, just the the knowledge um, that you are with us, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so Ephesians chapter 4, and verse 1, it says, I therefore... The prisoner of the Lord beseech that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. So as I said already, the transition is now from the from the theory or the doctrine to the application. Now, how should we walk? Okay, we, we want to apply it. Now, how should we walk? And Paul uses the word worthy, walk worthy, even if it leads to imprisonment. Paul says, I therefore the prisoner of the lord beseech you to walk worthy so even if it leads to that we need to walk worthy of our vocation our vocation is a bestowment of god's distinguishing grace upon a person so it's a it's a it's a i want to say it's a gift it's something that god through his grace gives each and every christian so to walk worthy of this vocation it's a a gift or a talent, something you can do for God. So to walk worthy of that calling that God has given you. Now, how does a worthy walk look like? What does it look like? Um, Well, one that lives up to the call of God. We see that at the end of the verse, the, the vocation wherewith you are called. So one that lives up to this call of God. Now, this can be a general call to every believer. In other words, the call to be sanctified, the call to be spirit-filled, the call to be thankful. So that is the general call of God to every believer. But there's also the specific nature of God's calling to every believer. And um, and every believer needs to seek God as to what is the specifics of what God wants them to do but it will stem from you applying the general vocation of God and at times following this calling will be easy but at other times and most of the time it will take a lot of discipline and faithfulness and that's why Paul beseeches them he begs them because it requires some serious backbone and a lot of grace to walk worthy of the, voc- the vocation wherewith God has called each and every one of us. In verse 2, it says, So walk worthy of this vocation, but then it says, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love. So immediately Paul cautions against pride. Someone who seeks to walk worthy of the way God wants him or her to walk, um, in other words, to overcome sin, to grow in the knowledge of God. To bear fruit, to, to be living out what God has called you to do, is at risk of becoming proud and overbearing. Now, overbearing is the opposite of meek, which in verse 2 we were called to be meek. So, it, Paul immediately cautions because as soon as you start um, pursuing, I want to say, this calling, it can be the temptation to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to walk. So Paul cautions against that immediately. So follow hard after your calling, but do it with humility, meekness, and patience. Now how do you do this? And that's what Paul says at the end of verse 2, forbearing one another in love. So if you are going to live or walk worthy of the vocation, but still meek and lowly, And patient, you're going to have to be filled with a lot of love. In um, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 1, Paul says, "Now as touching things offered unto idols, we know that we have, um, we know, (laughs) sorry. Now as touching things offered unto idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. Charity edifieth. So we need." A lot of charity. In Romans 13, 10, it says, Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. We need love because then we won't work any ill to our neighbor. It is the fulfilling of the law. And so we need a lot of love if we are going to live um, or walk worthy with meekness, um, as God has called us to do. And the second thing that I would say, if you are to walk worthy but in humility you're going to not just lead, need love you're going to need um to boast purely in christ to boast in christ we saw in ephesians chapter 2 verse 9 where it's it speaks that our salvation is not of works lest any man should boast right so we can't boast in our salvation but it goes further than that in first corinthians 1 um, and verse 30 it says but of him Ye are ye in Christ Jesus, we are of him in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So all those things are found in Christ, that according as it is written, that he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. So if you are going to walk worthy of the vocation, but do that in humility and patience and meekness, you are going to need a lot of love, but you're also going to have to find your boast in Christ. So anything that you see that is good in you is because of God's grace in your life. How God has given, given grace to you and shown grace to you and, and guides you in grace through His Spirit. And so focus on those two things and do not puff yourself up through what you think you have achieved. So if we're focused on loving those around us and aware that all that we are is grace... A natural outflow will be meekness, a mild spirit, a self-controlled spirit, um, humility and patience. Verse three, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Now, we read about this bond of peace and unity in chapters two and three, where it speaks about us being reconciled to God, how Jew and Gentile was brought together. And so I think this mainly focuses on um, our conduct between one another, endeavouring to keep the unity, um, and also the unity that now exists between us and God. Although nothing can sever um, our or take away our salvation, that it surely can disturb the unity. I want to say the the quality of fellowship that there exists. So Paul. Urges after pointing out these, this peace and the unity that, is a, that was created by salvation in chapters 1 and 3, Paul urges them to continue in this pursuit, the pursuit of unity and peace. That's why he says, endeavor to keep. That is to say, strive diligently to preserve this. We should all endeavor not to let anything come between this peace, especially... Not our own pride or self-righteousness. So that's why he cautions us of these things in verse 2. Don't let your pride or self-righteousness get in the way of this pursuit of peace and unity amongst one another. So let's treat each other like verse 2 demands. Verse 4. It says, there is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope. Of your calling. So this body as we've studied now already in Ephesians and in other places. This body is the the body of Christ. Comprised of all the saints. um, As it is the spirit. And you'll see it is connected to the spirit. So this body and one spirit. Because it's this spirit that baptized us into this one body. So and every believer without distinction has the same spirit ...working in them. You can open to First um, Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. First Corinthians chapter 12. So every believer... ...without distinction... ...has the same Spirit working in them. The degree to which the work of the Spirit is seen... ...is more a function of how much you yield yourself to the Spirit. If that makes sense. So the degree to which the Spirit's work in your life is seen is based on your yielding to the spirit. But the spirit, the same spirit is working in all of us. So we can see that in in first Corinthians chapter twelve and verse uh, eleven. Speaking about spiritual gifts in the context, but all these things verse eleven, but all these worketh that one and self same spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. For as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. You can see how consistent these three verses are are with what we studied in Ephesians 2, in Ephesians 3, and even what Paul has discussed now in verse 4 of Ephesians 4, how that it's by one spirit that we are baptized into one body. And it's the self-same spirit. Um, so you can keep your place in, in 1 Corinthians 12. We'll be there again a bit later. Um, but... The point is just it's the same spirit, but the degree to which the work of that spirit is seen in the person is how much that person is yielded to the work of the spirit. Now, in back in Ephesians chapter four and verse four, it says, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one hope of your calling, what calling unifies believers? What calling do we all share? We share in the hope of eternal life as partakers of God's predestined plan. You may remember in Ephesians chapter one, we we learnt about um, it's the Spirit by which we are sealed, but it's also the Spirit which is the earnest of our inheritance, which is to say the down payment of this inheritance, this eternal hope that we will one day be fully redeemed and we will one day be with the Lord. And so we sh- we all share. In that that hope, um, and the and the joint mission um, of sharing this hope that was given to us with the world, we share in the hope personally and that hope um, to the rest, sharing that hope to the rest of the world. Another calling that unites us all is that we also share in the high calling of God, in Philippians three and verse twelve. Um, we can read about um, Philippians 3, verse 12 to 14. We read about this high calling of God. And this calling is essentially to be perfect and to be um, complete as Christ is. In other words, this high calling of God that we all share is to be more conformed to the image of Christ and not just inwardly focused on our conforming to the image of Christ, but also conforming to the image um, or helping others to conform to the image of Christ. So there's that communal aspect. There's that unity um, between believers that should exist um, because we are striving for the same purpose. And being part of this body um, of spirit-baptized believers, we have a shared calling, and this creates true and lasting unity. Now, in verse 5, it says, so we dealt with one body, one spirit. Now it says one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Now, the unity or the togetherness should be kept. All right. From verse three, it, it should be kept because the, it, because the Lord who saved us is the same. So we're all saved by this one Lord. Here it says one Lord. We're all saved by the same Lord. And therefore, the unity and the togetherness should be kept. A good cross-reference to that is Acts 4.12. And then also the unity and togetherness should be kept because the fundamentals of the faith. In other words, the body of revealed doctrine is the same. The body of revealed doctrine. That's why it says one Lord and one faith. Now, this body of revealed doctrine, which is the same, you get good reference to that, is Jude chapter 1 or Jude, Jude verse 3. Um, it says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful, needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto all the saints. Once delivered unto all the saints. This face. For this faith was once delivered unto all the saints. And so we should be united because we share the same um, faith. And then also this unity and togetherness should be kept because we are all baptized in like fashion as our Lord commanded. In the Great Commission, we should all be baptized in the name of the Spirit, uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And so this water baptism, which we all share in, the one baptism, symbolizes the spiritual truth of verse 4, where we are of one body, baptized by one spirit. And so the, the one spiritual baptism is symbolized by the one water baptism. So, you, the, regardless of how you look at it, it is one God or one Lord, um, one faith and one baptism. Now, verse 6, it says, One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all now one god this is should not come as a shock to any of us this is a basic doctrine of scripture whether old testament or new testament in isaiah 44 verse 6 to 8 we read the following it says thus saith the lord the king of israel and his redeemer the lord of hosts i am the first i am the last and beside me there is no god and who, as I, shall call and shall declare it, and set it in order for me, since I appointed the ancient people. And the things that are coming, and shall come, let them show unto them. Fear ye not, neither be afraid. Have, I, have not I told thee um, from that time, and have declared it? Ye are even my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God. I know not any. So God is saying, there is no other God. I don't know of any. And if God doesn't know of any, I can guarantee you that there aren't any other gods. So this is a basic doctrine of Scripture. And a good cross-reference for this is Deuteronomy 6:4. And then we also read in in First Corinthians um, chapter 8, verse um, 5 to 6. We also read about how Paul basically says the same thing and how he's talking to a Gentile crowd and he tells them that there are many who believe in, in, in these idols or in other gods. But for us, there is one God. And so we see this in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So that's 1, uh, 1 Corinthians 8, verse 5 to 6. And this, this doctrine of one God was contrary to the common Gentile crowds who had numerous deities. And. Um, And might be tempted to think that the Jewish God, Jehovah, was not the same as their God and Father, which Paul is speaking about now in verse 6. So Paul clarifies that there is one God and Father of all. And so Paul clarified by elaborating on the fatherhood of God. He speaks of God, this one God and Father of all. Um, And then he says um, in verse 6, who is above all and through all. Now, in theology class, we look a bit deeper into the um, fatherhood of God. And so we're not going to go into that right now. But for now, I think what's relevant is when, when Paul says above all, he is referring generally to as God being supreme in power and authority, um, and that there is no one else above him. So he's above every authority and every power. Um, you can read more about this in Isaiah um, Isaiah forty verse twelve to twenty eight. So he's supreme in power and authority, but then it also says that he is um, above all and through all. This also is a general way of uh, a general way in which God is Father, and that is that through referring to his omnipresence and also referring to his providence and how that God provides and God is everywhere how he makes it to reign on the just and the unjust and so God is the provider of all but then it says at the end of the verse and in you all so it switches from the general application of God's fatherhood to the personal application of God's fatherhood and that personally is in you all so God is the father of us in a personal sense, because we are adopted in the beloved, as we read in chapter one of Ephesians. Now in also in Ephesians chapter two and verse twenty-two, Ephesians two, verse twenty-two, it says, In whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. And so God is Father generally in his power, in his omnipresence, in his providence but then also personally in each of our lives because we are adopted through Jesus Christ. Now, in verses 4 to 6, the theme of unity comes up the whole time. It's one God, one Father, one Spirit, one body, one faith, one baptism, one, 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 one. But unfortunately, there is a lack of unity in Christian circles today because not everyone endeavored to keep the unity that Paul prescribed in verses 46. They went about creating their own um, doctrines and baptisms and all these things. They didn't unite around the unity of the word. And if there is all this oneness described in who God is and in the faith, then why is there so much division? The problem is not god or god's message the problem is sin and man's selfish desires you see false unity okay so we have true unity the way it should be done and what creates true unity but false unity is when people gather together see what they all agree about hold on to those things that they all agree about and throw the rest out True unity is when we put our private interpretations aside, see what scripture says, unite around that, and throw our sinful, selfish, and incorrect desires or interpretations out. So the one says, what do we all agree about? And let's hold on to those things and throw the rest out, and see if we can unite around that. That doesn't create lasting unity. True unity is found when we throw our own opinions, our own interpretations, our own selfish desires out, we say what does scriptures say, and we n- unite around that. Unfortunately, unity in the Christian sfe- Christian sphere is pursued not in the latter fashion the way it should be, but rather in the first. That is why Christianity has become so shallow and so substanceless because doctrine is forsaken for popularity, and for so-called unity. Another thing that I want to point out in verses 4-6 to is the theme of the Trinity. You can see in verse 4 it speaks of the Spirit. In verse 5 it speaks of one Lord, that is Jesus. And in verse 6 it speaks of God and Father. So the doctrine of the Trinity comes in as Paul thinks about this, this theme of unity, he, he he can't help but think of the doctrine of unity. And Paul emphasizes that although the three persons of the godhead have unique roles, they are completely unified in every aspect of divine nature and plan. So they're completely unified in nature and in divine plan. Now in um verse seven. Um, I hope you're still open in 1 Corinthians 12. but So let's read Ephesians 4 verse 7. It says, But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. But to everyone. So now the focus changed from the unity in God to the uniqueness of each believer who came to Christ and has a relationship with Christ. So it goes from the unity and how we should strive to be united, but then it also emphasizes that there is a uniqueness. You can see that, but to every one of us is given, according to the measure of the gift of Christ. So we're all saved by grace, the same grace, Christ's vicarious life and death, um, life, death and resurrection, to the same intent, with the same effectiveness, Okay, so there's the unity, the same grace to the same purpose. There's the unity, but the quantity, not the quality, the quantity is different for each believer. We see that they're according to the measure of the gift of grace. This is not favoritism, if I could put it like that. It's according to God's wisdom and God's sovereignty. We can see the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 11. It says, um, But all these things worketh that one and self same spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. In Romans 12 and verse 6, it says, Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given us. So we have differing gifts according to the measure of the grace as the Spirit divides severally, as He will. But I say it's not favoritism because it can only be favoritism if the gift was something that happened to you while you were ignoring God. It's not like you're sitting there and all of a sudden a gift just smacks you in the face and you have this gift all of a sudden. That's not how it works. So it's not that that it's arbitrary. It is that God gives in his wisdom, in his sovereign will and understanding for the best of all of us, for the best of the church, for unity that God can be glorified most effectively. This giving is also according to those who apply themselves, dedicate themselves to God. So the gift is not this, I want to say, incredibly spiritual thing. But it's also to those who are dedicated, who are faithful and who apply themselves to the study of God's word and walking in the way that God wants them to walk. But we'll talk a bit more about that um, later. Now, further in verse seven, it says um, the gift of Christ at the end of the verse. This grace given to us is a gift. And the source of this gift is Christ. We often view grace in this way only when we think of salvation. God's grace shown to us in Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus being the source of this grace. We often only think of that in the light of salvation. But this verse is speaking in the present tense. It says, Unto every one of us is given, not was given. When we were saved, it is given. Every believer is blessed presently through Christ with a personal gift of grace. We call it a spiritual gift or an enablement. That is what the Spirit has given each. You can read more about these, these spiritual gifts in 1 in Corinthians chapter twelve, verse four to seven. You can also read about it in Romans twelve, verse three to six. We actually looked at it. I'm on Sunday night, but just read 1 Corinthians chapter 12 with me, verses 4 to 7, and notice the doctrinal consistency between what Paul is dealing with here and what he's speaking about in Ephesians chapter 4. So 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4, it says, Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. There we have it. Same spirit, different gifts. Verse 5, And there are differences of administrations, but the same Lord, the Spirit, the Lord. Verse 6. And there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. The Spirit, the Lord, and God. Verse 7. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. To profit with all. This will become important a bit later. But... It's incredible to see this doctrinal consistency between these letters. And so, as I said earlier, don't over-spiritualize the word gift. The question is, what talents, what abilities, what knowledge has the Lord blessed you with? That's essentially what it comes down to. We read in Romans 1 and verse 11, where Paul speaks. He speaks to this Roman church, and he's essentially saying that knowledge, me wanting to give you a spiritual gift by establishing you in the faith, in other words, teaching you the word of God, even tonight, we are all receiving that spiritual gift. And so be careful not to over-spiritualize the gifts that God has given us. So importantly, more importantly than I almost want to say, Do I have a gift? What gift do I have? Is what are you doing with what God has blessed you with? Has he given you an ability to teach? Are you teaching? Has he given you an ability to to read and understand very well and explain those things very well? Are you using that? Has he given you the ability to to help others, to be um, compassionate and really care and share and help and be hospitable. Then are you using it? And so that's more what it comes down to. So we often get bogged down on, I want to say, super spiritual matters. Whereas it's supposed to be incredibly practical. And in how we're supposed to help one another. Verse 8, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8. It says, therefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now Paul is bringing this um into the context because he just spoke about the spiritual gifts that are supposed to play a role in the unity of the church. So he's bringing in this, I want to say this passage in verse 8 to 10. So let's read verse 8 to 10, verse 9. Now he that ascended, what is it but he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth. He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above the heavens that he might fill all things. So, verse 8, wherefore he saith. So, Paul is referring to David in Psalm 68, verse 18. That's your attendance verse tonight, Psalm 68, verse 18. Paul is referring back to he saith, David, or God through David in Scripture. And he uses this verse and applies it to the victorious work of Christ. But what I find interesting is that in, in, in Psalm 68, verse 18, this verse is referring to God, It's referring to Jehovah. And so this is now applied to Christ, which is a, I want to say, a subtle um, claim to the deity of Christ. So that's just an interesting side note. but he, wherefore he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive, captive. So what we're going to look at in verses eight to 10 is sort of what happened because it's a great opportunity to speak about this. What happened surrounding Christ's death and resurrection and his ascension? So we're going to talk a bit about that um, from the things that come up in verse 8 to 10. So before Christ could ascend, he had to descend first. That makes sense. Christ came in the flesh as God in the flesh. He came down. So there's a descent. Um, but also, when Christ died, we also know that he descended. So, to where did he descend? It says, to the lower parts, in verse 9, to the lower parts of the earth. So, we know when Jesus died, his soul went down to the heart of the earth. Um, am I still alive? I think so all right um when um he descended sorry, I just need to get my thoughts straight again um, so he descended to the heart of the earth in Matthew twelve and verse forty we read about how Jesus um, refers to Jonah and as how jonah um had to as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three nights, so the Son of man will be in the heart of the earth for three nights, so we know that. Jesus went to the heart of the earth. In Luke chapter 23, verse 43, Jesus tells the man on the cross that today you will be with me in paradise. And um, according to Luke, Luke chapter 16, verse 26, paradise, or Abraham's bosom, which is another way of referring to paradise, um, and how were divided by a gulf. There was a gulf fixed between them. And this was all in the heart of the earth. So Jesus, when he died, he descended to the heart of the earth where he spent three nights um, and where he was with that thief in paradise. But why did Jesus go there? In first Peter chapter three verse nineteen we read about um, leading captivity captive. That is to declare victory over sin, death and Satan. Um oh, sorry. 1st Peter 3 verse 19 says to preach to the prisoners, um, uh, to preach the spirit, to preach to the spirits in prison. There we go. To preach to the spirits in prison. And so Jesus went there to declare victory over sin, death and Satan. That is what he was preaching. And in Revelation 1, we read that he's got the keys to death and hell and, um, so he went down to declare that victory and to preach to those spirits in prison, but also to take those Old Testament saints which were in paradise um, in Abram's bosom, to the presence of God. And so we read that in Second Corinthians chapter 12, verse one to four. Second Corinthians chapter 12, verse one to four, we read about how paradise was moved from the heart of the earth to the third heaven. And so we know that when Jesus took captivity captive, he took those Old Testament saints who were still captive by Satan, waiting for the Messiah to come because they were atoned for, but not cleared. We read about or we learned about that in Romans chapter 3. But in the New Testament, now that Christ has died, we have in Colossians 1 verse 14, it speaks about how that we are now forgiven and redeemed through Christ And it's no longer just forgiven, but not yet redeemed. Because redemption is found in Christ alone. Now it says, taking captivity captive. That is to say, he triumphed over his enemies, Satan, sin and death, which had before enslaved all the world and set those prisoners, the ones waiting for the Messiah, free. That is why we read in a similar context in in 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection of Jesus And what that means, we read about sin, where is your sting? Um, For death is swallowed up in victory. Um, So we read about that victory claim that Jesus made when he ascended. And then it says, when he ascended, he gave gifts unto men. This was customary in those days after a war. So after a war, um, the winning side used to give the spoils of war to the people um, at their return from victory so he gave gifts unto men he gave gifts unto men the spoils essentially from war and so when Christ rose it was the proclamation or the proof of his victory Um, and when he ascended 40 days later he gave gifts unto men which is essentially the spoils of war now um Yeah, let's move on to verse 11, verse 11 and gave some apostles. So if you remove the brackets from verse nine to um, verse nine to 10, you'll see what Paul was speaking up in verse eight. He says, and gave gifts unto men. Then he jumps to verse 11 and he says, and gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and some teachers. So part of the gifts that God gave, or that Christ gave, were these people, these people in these offices. So even that was considered to be a gift. These prophets, these pastors, these these apostles. And so if I can go through each of these, um, these offices, the first is an apostle. An apostle, which is the Latin word, or the Latin word for apostle is missio which is where we get the word missionary from. That is one sent with specific orders. That's what that word means. It's one sent with specific orders. Um, This refers to two groups. The first group is the 12 apostles and the special apostle to the Gentiles, Paul. That's the first group. The second group that this term apostles refers to is, I want to say, modern-day missionaries, or the general way, missionaries. So to be part of this first group, these 12, or um, or the Apostle Paul, um, an apostle had to have witnessed the key events in Jesus' ministry and been taught by him and received specific orders um, from him. And we can read about that in Acts chapter 1. Um, so there were specific prerequisites to be one of these 12 apostles. They had specific purposes to fulfill. The one was um, to establish and to lay the foundation of the church. We read about that in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 30, to lay the foundation of the church. A second thing they had to do was to declare and record God's word. We read about that in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 5, to declare and to record God's word. The third thing that these apostles had to do is they had to do signs to confirm the message. In 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12, um, Paul says that truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you. So the signs of an apostle were wrought among you. And so we have Um, The three tasks that these apostles had to do. They had to establish and lay the foundation of the church. They had to declare and record God's word. And also they had to do signs to confirm this message. Now this apostleship has since ceased. It has ceased and has been replaced by missionaries. um, Generally sent ones. So that's why I say there are two groups in this term apostle. These sent ones, like Pastor Mike, he's Apostle Mike, um, They don't have to lay the foundation of the church as a whole, because it's already done, but they still establish and plant new local churches. They don't have to record God's word, since it's already done, but they need to rightfully, faithfully interpret and declare it. They don't have to do signs to confirm the message, as this has ceased and already been done away with, um, but they have to contend for the faith, And prove um, and offer proof by pointing to the signs and evidence for the faith. So you have those same roles being performed by the modern day apostle or missionary, but not in the foundation phases or in the key phases that those 12 and Paul had to do. The second group that we read about in verse um, 11 is prophets. Prophets, these are preachers, specifically speaking. To save people in a local church. Okay. Preachers specifically speaking to save people in a local church. You can read about this in Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. I'd like to read it to you. Um, Acts chapter 13 and verse um, 1 to 3. It says. Now there were in the church. That was at Antioch. Certain prophets. And teachers. As Barnabas and Simeon, that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. Now these prophets, it says, um, were teachers. So it was at the church of Antioch. And they were ministering to the Lord. That's what they were doing there in Antioch. And so these prophets were specifically ministering to saved people in a local church. They were not sent ones specifically until they were sent. The prophet was in the local church, serving in the local church to saved ones. And these prophet these prophets did not have some sort of prophetical ministry. It was not a separate ministry where that was purely what they were doing. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 37, it says the following. If any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. So a prophet, a true prophet, biblically defined, had to conform to the teachings of the apostles, not external revelation in their own ministry. That's not at all what a prophet was. The main purpose of a prophet is to encourage and to stir up saints unto good works in a local church. Now, the third one we should read about in verse 11 um, is evangelists. Now, a prophet is a preacher speaking primarily to save people. An evangelist is a preacher primarily preaching the gospel to a lost world. And then we have the final group, which is pastors and teachers. Notice it doesn't say and some pastors and some teachers. Pastors and teachers is one group. Um, Another word for a pastor is to say a shepherd. So shepherds and teachers. These are grouped together um, by the text. And this is a single office of leadership in the church and defines the functions of a pastor. A pastor is to shepherd and a pastor is to teach. He shepherds by leading, by overseeing and by caring for the flock. He teaches by establishing and helping these sheep, I want to say, grow. So those are the two functions of A pastor. The same office is called an elder in Titus or a bishop in First Timothy three. An elder or a bishop. Now what is the purpose of having all these offices in the body of Christ? Well, let's have a look. Ephesians four verse twelve for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Actually, verse 12 to 16 speaks about what the purpose of these offices are. But verse 12 sums it up very well. Um, and also, in, in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7, I tried to emphasize it when we read it. But in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7, after speaking about the gifts, it says, But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. So, the purpose of these spiritual gifts is to profit with The church is to profit everyone surrounding those gifts. And so that is what the purpose of these offices, these gifts are in the body of Christ. And um, to the end, so the purpose of it is that all these offices play a key role in bringing this plan of God with the church to fruition. Each role in the church, each gift in the church plays a role in bringing this total plan that God has for the church to fruition. It's a high calling and should never be taken lightly, like so many apostles or prophets or pastors are doing. It should not be taken lightly. So take note of the goal of these offices. In verse 12, it says, For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Take note of those things. Um, and what these people in these positions should be walking, working towards. And compare it to the ministry and the life of so many pastors or prophets or apostles these days. You will see that they do not line up. And the, what we also need to do is just to check ourselves that if we are in such a, such a position or ever find ourselves to be in such a position um, that we also pursue these goals that that is what we have in mind and that's what we strive towards um, so in verse 12 it says perfecting of the saints that is to to, to, to fully equip or to complete um, the saints um, in verse thirteen of Ephesians 4 it says, So we all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto the perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That is to complete, to bring to, to bring to completion, to um to fully equip um, that fullness of Christ. That's what it means to perfect the saints. And how does one fully equip or complete a believer for the work of the ministry? In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. We read exactly what we need for anyone to be fully equipped um, for the work of the ministry. And in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, it says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Verse 17, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. There we have that perfect again, that that perfecting of the saints, that completeness, that that fully equipped, thoroughly furnished. And it's all through the scripture that is applied for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness. So, how does one perfect the saints? Growth is by the word of God. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that they may grow thereby. Sanctification is by the word sanctify them by thy truth thy word is truth and then also faith is by the word so the strengthening of your faith faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of god so without the word of god without the teaching and the application of the inspired word of god you can't perfect the saints and so every one who fills a position in a church whether it be apostle prophet pastor teacher evangelist this goal should be to perfect the saints. Verse 13 says, till we all come in the unity of the faith um, and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto the perfect man. There we have that perfect man again. Unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, when verse 13 refers to faith, it's referring to this body of knowledge revealed to the church And especially referring to the gospel. And so true unity can only exist when people unify around an unchanging external source. In other words, the revealed scripture. You can't try and bring people together and keep people together by uniting them around ideas of people. Because people change. And once one person changes and the other person doesn't change, then the unity is disrupted. That's why you need an unchanging and an external source for unity to exist. And that is the revealed scripture. Pastor John MacArthur said, Oneness and harmony is possible only when it is built on the foundation of sound doctrine. Oneness and harmony is only possible if it is built on the foundation of sound doctrine. And that is very, very true. And that's exactly I think that what Paul is aiming towards with this. And then it also says in verse thirteen to all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. This is not referring to a general knowledge about the Son, but rather a deep and growing knowledge of the Saviour. You can see That in the rest of the verse, the rest of the verse 13 says, unto the perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. It's not a general knowledge about who Jesus is. It's a deeper knowledge. It's a God wants every believer to grow more into the likeness, into the form of his son to become perfect, to become complete, to become fully furnished. And this mutual hope and scripturally motivated pursuit among believers is what creates unity. And that's why unity is only possible when scripture is central in the believer's life. Verse 14. That we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. So the alternative to unity in the faith, which is what we just read about, is being carried about with every wind of doctrine doctrine. That's the alternative. And unfortunately for so many people, even saved people, being carried about with every wind of doctrine is their daily life. And it's because there is no unity in the faith. It happens because proper doctrine, as revealed by God and properly exegeted by faithful pastors and teachers, is considered boring, is considered old school, by modern progressive society. That's why when scripture is taught for what it says and applied, that's where unity exists. People are focused on self-help and self-elevation lessons and misuse the Bible as a tool to, to do this. So it's all about self-help, self-edification, self-elevation, but they use the Bible to push that agenda. And the Bible is not a tool to be used or misused by a preacher. But rather, every preacher should be used by Scripture, not the other way around. A preacher must be used by Scripture and not Scripture used or misused by a preacher. As soon as man and his sinful desires, whether it be from the pulpit or the pew, because oftentimes... The, the preacher, yes, as wrong as he is, he's focused on what the, the people in the, in, the, in the pew want and not just, um, not just from his own selfish desires what he's preaching. So as soon as man and his sinful desires, whether from the pulpit or the pew, become the focus, false doctrine thrives and unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God falls away. As soon as we become the focus. That is why Paul introduces this deceitfulness of man at the end of the verse. Because whether you're the preacher or whether you're the one in the pew, your deceitfulness, you following the deceitfulness of your heart, will lead to a disruption of the unity God wants to create, or has actually created in the body of Christ. Paul, this word at the, in verse 14, the this, this slight of men, the Greek word is, is kubos. And that is the same word that is used for a cube, a gambling cube. And so what Paul is essentially saying is that trying to find unity in a message that comes from man's sinful or deceitful heart is like expecting to get the jackpot from every time you gamble. It's like throwing or rolling the dice and hoping for a positive result. That is what it is when you are focusing not on scripture, the unchanging truth of scripture, but when you're focusing on the man um, to hit the to hit the right spot. And that's why we shouldn't trust ourselves at the deceitfulness of our hearts. But rather hand them over to God. So may the Lord be gracious to each of us. And help us to remain steadfast in proclaiming the message that can truly unify. And that message is the truth. And that's why Paul says in verse 15 of Ephesians 4. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things. Which is the head even Christ the truth this is the solution to a lack of unity this is the cure for instability this being tossed to and fro is the truth not just I want to say there is only one truth but these days people challenge that so not subjective truth but objective truth not just any it's it's God created truth if we believe that there's a God who's all-knowing and all-powerful and all-wise then he created truth And truth stands irrespective of what time we're in. So God created an established truth. It is something that every person made in the image of God lingers for. Yet so many try to replace it with their own cultural and subjective truth. The truth that the world is lacking is the truth revealed by God and recorded in scripture. The truth and only that has the power to establish people, reconcile and create unity. That is why we as the church need to unite around the truth of scripture and take it to a broken world. And so when we deal with one another or whether we take it to the world, we must do it in love. And then in verse 15, it says, may grow up into him in all things. This work, Of Christ in each of us is a gradual work it's a growing it's a step-by-step day-by-day growing and this I say this because it's important to notice that in your own life there'll be ups and downs there'll be times of faster there'll be times of slower growth there'll be times of growth pains but you need to be patient with yourself but also especially when you look at others around you to be patient. To notice that they are also growing. And that it takes um, it takes another believer to help those people through those tough times. And so let's treat each other with truth. So helping each other. Helping ourselves. Trusting God's word, the truth. But also to do it in love. That's the only way we can grow and remain steadfast. Verse 16. And we close with that tonight. From whom the whole body fitly joined, that is, from whom Christ, fitly joined together and compacted, by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working, um, effectual working in the measure of every part, making maketh increase in the body unto the edifying of itself in love. From whom, so in other words, the ability of the church to produce strong and stable and mature Christians comes not from the effort of the believers alone, but from Christ, its head. The idea behind this verse is that every part of the body of Christ has a proper location and a purpose in that location. Every joint, compacted, fitly joined, every member has a location. So individually, every member in the body of Christ has a measure of grace and spiritual gifts and abilities wherewith they need to serve the Lord. But collectively, each member in his or her place exercising their gifts allows for a biblical and godly church to grow. So how do you get church growth? By the individual learning and applying the gift that God has given them. And collectively, these gifts working together, fitly joined, compacted, work together to profit with all, as we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. In essence, the biblical church is filled with love and truth, with Christ as its head. It's made up of blessed individuals with a collective mission. May we as individuals play our part in the body of Christ and we collectively edify one another and grow in love. Amen. Father, thank you so much. For this lesson, Lord, um, thank you for the unity, the peace that there exists in knowing You. That there exists in serving You with other people who are like-minded. Lord, may we please never um, allow ourselves um, to be to be um, directed by our deceitful hearts, Lord. Um, That we won't be tossed through and to and fro, Lord, but that we would unite around what your word has said. may we approach your word um, with spirit filled hearts um, to understand what you have you would have us know, to understand what you would have us do. And Lord may we walk worthy of that vocation wherewith you have called us Lord. Thank you Lord for this time. Um, please help us Lord, to apply these truths, to love one another, to speak truth but never forsake love, Um, to apply these things as we walk daily, um, to become more like your son, and um, to change more lives, to take that hope um, that you've given us to a world that is crying for hope, that is crying for unity, and that is so disrupted. Um, Please help us to make the difference we can in each of our spheres. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.